Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to Parkview. I'm Casey Tigert. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really excited to be bringing us into a new series. And this series is called Bring It Home, and we're going to talk a lot about what happens in our homes and in our families. And, and it's based around kind of a baseball idea that home is where everything really happens. Home is where runs are scored in baseball. Home is where batters begin and all of that good stuff. And Maybe you're hearing this and you know that if baseball is involved at Parkview, that there are certain jokes that come along with that that we typically take from the platform. Now, my friend Steve confronted me and he said, listen, you guys take it out way too hard on a particular <clears throat> north side team. And um, I don't think that's fair. And I, you know what? I think Steve is right because the reality is there are plenty of jokes to go both ways. So for your viewing pleasure, check it out. How old is Wrigley anyway? Do you even have electricity? It's powered by tradition, my friend. It's something you wouldn't know about at Mobile Phone Park. Someone should trim those weeds on your outfield walls. It's called Ivy, as in Ivy League. A bush, as in Bush League. You know, I've heard that for the White Sox, DH stands for don't have talent. Have talent is one word. Yes, it is. The last Cub to throw a no-hitter was your pitching machine. Even our handsomely coiffed ex-governor wouldn't try to sell a White Sox seat. Last time your leadoff hitter got to second base was at his high school prom. You see this C? Stands for Chicago. All you got on your head is a stocking. Wrigleyville isn't even real Chicago. Once you get north of Division Street, you might as well be in Wisconsin. Can't even get a decent slice of pizza. I had better pizza in New York. See, see, even, even we know where to draw the line. <laughs> well, I'm really happy to be here. And actually, I should tell you, it's, it's sort of lucky and, and fortunate. And I almost didn't make it because uh, we just had a birthday party for my daughter who just uh, is turning five. And so I had uh, 14 five-year-olds at my house. And um, even split, kind of 60-40, boys to girls. So, you know, there, was, there were hijinks um, aplenty. And I could describe it all to you and my reasons for survival. But I think I'll just show you two pictures that will show you how close to death I actually came. Um, here's the first one. This is the pinata hanging in our garage, okay, filled with candy. If you don't know what a pinata is, uh, you give kids who are hyped on sugar a big stick and tell them to swing until they break it. Pinata before, pinata after. No more pinata. It was disintegrated and destroyed by the children in my yard. So it's a really good thing that I got here in uh, one piece. It's it's hard to believe. I mean, five years has gone by like a like nobody's business. And actually, Tim is not here because he is at Wheaton College uh, because his daughter Lauren is graduating from college uh, this weekend. And here's to put it in perspective: when they came here, Denise was pregnant with Lauren. Okay, so now she's graduating from college. That time went by like a, like a lightning bolt. And so I'm, I'm trying to really wrap my brain around the fact that five years has gone by so fast. What's going to happen in the next 15? And what that does to me is it reminds me that I, we don't have all that much time with our kids. 
And so we're talking about home team. We're talking about the fact that faith is one of those things that begins at home. And if that's going to happen, what, did, what needs to happen for us? And this is not just for parents. This is for grandparents. This is for parents-to-be. This is for aunts and uncles and other relatives who have influence over kids in your life. What are we going to do and how are we going to raise kids and families that get out of that broken cycle of dysfunction and destructiveness that we often see get into people's lives? It begins really with children. You, that's where you see it the most because kids are so beautiful and so honest and so earnest. Even Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. There's this innocence about them that lets them understand heaven a little better than us wise adults. But the other thing about kids is they aren't really sophisticated enough to like gloss over and hide all their flaws and things. Like I found this list of property laws that toddlers use. So, you know, for a for a toddler, first of all, if I like it, it's mine. Okay? If I can take it from you, it's mine. If it it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If you are playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. If it's broken, it's yours. So they aren't really too smooth. They can't gloss over that. You, a kid wears who they are on their sleeve. They haven't grown up and gotten sophisticated enough to learn how to lie. But when they do, we see it. And we, it's just this chilling mirror. It's like, where did you get that? And then we hear that old commercial. I learned it from watching you, all right? I'm like, oh. My daughter was in the bathroom, and she dropped a word I'd never really heard her say before. And it stunned me. And I said, where did you hear that? And she said, from you. I said, oh, that'll preach. Uh, <laughs> there's this mirroring that kids do, and they, they see us. And, and Scripture tells us that if you train up a child in the way he should go, when he is old, he will not turn from it. That's a good and a bad thing. Whatever ways we train our kids up, that's what they're going to go with. And so maybe you're in here and you're thinking, listen, I got you on that one, man. My parents, I know exactly where they messed up. And I know what they messed up with me, and I'm not going to do that with my kids. Mom did this. Dad did this. My training went bad, and here's where it went bad, and so I'm not going to let that happen. And for some of you, that meant you got into this relationship with God, you found your way to Parkview, and now you're committed to saying, I'm going to get church into my kid's life. And you know what? I applaud you. Kudos to you for that, because that's a huge undertaking to get your kids here and to get, get church into their life. I think that's a big deal. But I have to let you in on some reality. And I'm not real good at reality, so I'm asking someone who is good at reality to come out and join me. This is Cheryl Benson, who's our uh, elementary coordinator. Cheryl, come on out. Everybody give it up for Cheryl. Hey. Thank you. Um, what you got there? So I decided to bring some gumballs, because who doesn't love a gumball every now and then, right? I like one. Yeah. I hope you don't steal any of these. But even cooler is that they're baseball gumballs. Oh, good. Because I wanted to come out here and tell you about the reality that we do have in Kids Connection. In Kids Connection, we serve nursery all the way to fifth graders. Mm -hmm. And really, the awesome thing about it is that we get 52 weekends with your kids. 52 weekends. 52 weekends in a year. But perfect church attendance really yeah. That doesn't really happen. Take out sickness, take out travel, baseball games, vacation, whatever it may be. And research has shown that the average family comes to church 40 times a year. So I decided to put 40 gumballs in here to represent the 40 hours that we have in Kids Connection with your kids. 
Our job is so important. A lot of times kids' connection gets confused with childcare, which is what we do. We take care of your kids, but it is so much more than that. Research has shown that most kids, by the time they leave fifth grade, will have decided on who God is and if they want a relationship with him. Hmm. So in these 40 hours a year that we have your kids, we have to make sure that they know what it means to have a relationship with Christ. So we put them in Bible, um, Bible stories in an age-appropriate setting, and we make sure that they know in those 40 hours who God is and what he wants with them. Huh, 40 hours? 40 hours. That's a good bit. Yeah. Well, okay, so what does the statistics say then about, about what parents and other guardians have as far as time with their, to teach their kids? Right, so we have the 40 hours, but then you look at the family. Right. And, well, let's bring it on out. The family has just a few more. I know you wanted me to carry them out, but you'll see why I couldn't do that in a second. Oh, heavens. Yeah. So the family has 3,000 hours. 3,000 compared to our 40. Oh, boy. So 3,000 hours the family has to train, to lead, to teach their child about spiritual things. Now, this number can be totally overwhelming, especially when you look at how they're compared to each other. Sure. But that's why in Kids Connection, we want to partner with the family. We want to make it easy to have conversations at home around everyday moments. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be an hour-long devotion every single night and you know, not eating or, or praying for days on end. That's not what it's about. It's about taking those everyday moments of these 3,000 hours and making the most of them. So we give you tools no matter what campus you're at. We have um, placemats for our early childhood kids. We have a parent queue that we send home hmm. with our elementary kids, all just to start sparking those spiritual conversations. Because really, the main thing that we got to figure out is these 3,000 hours. What do we do with them? Hmm. And how do, we, how do we make sure we're doing what we're supposed to be doing at home? Hmm. All right. Well, let me help them with that. Thanks, Cheryl. Let me help you with that challenge. We're talking about a story from Joshua, chapter 24. Joshua, the book of Joshua is coincidentally about a guy named Joshua. Now, Joshua is the kind of guy that you would hang out with in high school and he'd say, hey, how much will you pay me to eat this? He's the guy who every one of his stories begins with, hey, watch this, or here, hold my beer. He's the guy who does the stuff that's like a combination of dumb crook news and the X games all mixed together. It's that sort of unthinking courageousness that just steps out in the middle of nowhere and does whatever he's thinking. That's who Joshua is. In the book of Numbers, Joshua and a man named Caleb are sent with a bunch of other spies to go into this land that Israel is supposed to go and live in. God has promised them. And so all the spies go into the land, and when they come back, all the other spies are just dis- they're like, there's giants there, and, and they're scary, and, and we shouldn't do this, and let's just turn around and go back to slavery. Now, when you're starting to think slavery is better than what the future holds, that's called panic mode. Reality has whew, slipped out, and you're in this other world. And so all these spies are saying, let's go back to slavery. It would be better than fighting against these giants. And Joshua and Caleb go, You guys are crazy. And they're so torn by this. They tear their clothes and they begin to shout at them like, how could you turn your backs on what God has given us? This is what they say. They said, listen, guys, their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. We do not fear them. Basically, they said the war is ours. 
God is on our side. We win. What's the problem? What do the people do? Well, they freak out because they're already in panic mode and it doesn't get any better. They decide they want to stone Joshua and Caleb and not in the Woodstock sense. They want to throw rocks at them until they are dead. Because this is what happens when you stand up against the tide of what the rest of the world says is the right way to operate. People are going to think you're crazy and they're going to react negatively sometimes. So for us who influence kids, whether we're parents or relatives or parents-to-be or grandparents, whoever we are, when we stand up for those good and healthy and godly things, there are going to be people who don't agree with us. There are going to be people who think we're crazy. And they're going to say that to our faces. We may not get stoned for it, but Jesus said, listen, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You're going to have difficulties in cutting your path with your kids. So in our living and in our parenting or our influence over our children and our lives, we have to realize that much of the really healthy, godly stuff is just totally contrary to what other people think. That's just Jesus turning the world upside down like he often does. So Joshua, in his life, ends up becoming the leader of Israel after Moses. Uh, God tells Moses at one point, Commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he will lead the people across and will cause them to inherit the land which you will see. Catch this. The people who just wanted to stone Joshua are the ones that God says, put him in charge of them. Make him the leader over them. Those grandchildren of those generations, he's going to be the one to lead them. Now, if I'm Joshua, I'm a little nervous to turn my back on these people at this point because they've not proven themselves to be really trustworthy. But in that culture, when they say leader, they don't just mean a position of power. They mean to be the head. They mean to be, for lack of a better term, the parent. So Joshua becomes the father who parents Israel across the desert to their destination. Could you imagine Joshua taking them across? If you guys don't settle down, I'll turn this camel right around and we'll go back to Egypt. I saw that. Eleazar, look down. So he's parenting Israel across the desert, leading them into the promised land. And they get through it. They somehow magically make it through with God's help. They end up being faithful enough to get into this land that God had promised them. And so at the end of Joshua's life, they're standing there, ready to take possession of this place that he and Caleb had spied out so many years before. And this is what he says. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. He gives them a bit of a lesson about their family tree. He said, listen, this is the gene pool you come from. This is why you're in the situation you're in and why you've been wandering for so long, because your grandparents and your ancestors worshipped other gods. So if it was possible for them, that means it's possible for you. So I'm telling you right now, you've got to be aware of this. This is your family history. So you need to keep this in mind before we go into this land that God is giving us. They worshiped the gods of their culture. They worshiped the gods who didn't have any power. So I don't want you to fall into that trap. And then he tells the rest of the story sort of in William Wallace, Braveheart kind of fashion. If, you know, I grew up in a Nazarene church. We had revival meetings. The revival guys would just get red in the face and start spitting. And he said, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worship beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day who you will serve. Whether the gods of your forefathers that they serve beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, 
We will serve the Lord. So Joshua, at this key critical moment, standing on the border of the promised land, throws down the gauntlet and says, you guys do whatever you want. I've parented you all across the desert. I know how sorry you are. I know all of this. And you may choose to worship other gods. You may choose to go other ways. You may choose other sort of paths and passions. But as for me and the people in my influence, we're going to serve the Lord. We made this commitment. We take this stand. Joshua throws down and says, listen, I understand where you've been, but here's where we're making our stand now. This is where we're going. Parents, people who have children over in, influence over children in your lives, listen closely. Our children will never have God at the center of their lives unless God is the center of our life. We cannot give them an inheritance that is not ours to pass on. So if God is not the center of our 3,000 hours, it will never be the center of theirs, regardless of what they do with us here in their 40 hours. I mean, they may find their way to it, but really, do we, we want to give them a better shot than that. And so just to make it official, Joshua pushes Israel and they commit to be faithful to God, and then he marks it. He says, on that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. And then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. He set up a rock. Now, a rock is not something you can easily get around. This one's kind of squishy. A rock is not something you can easily get around. It's not something that moves well. It's something that if it's in your path, you either have to go over it or around it. It is in sight. It's something that you have to deal with. And so Joshua says, listen, you guys have been flaky the whole way. It's time that we put something down that's permanent, something you're going to have to deal with. Joshua throws down the gauntlet. It's like he puts on a wedding ring. It's, it's like making a huge commitment. It's like signing a mortgage. Everything changes after that. And he says... From this day on, I don't care what you do, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. In Israel's history, they do this often. They put a rock down. They mark this place so that they'll remember. And so maybe this is one of those moments where a commitment needs to be made, a rock needs to be put down in our lives as parents, as people who have influence over children in our lives, where we need to say, look, there are all kinds of ways to do this, but it's for me and my house, it's for me and the kids in my influence, in my area, we're going to serve the Lord. And we put the rock down right here and right now. If we want our kids to be followers of Jesus, we have to stand on this rock first. And do you want to know why? It's not rhetorical. Do you want to know why? This is free, free to you. And I know it's going to be an insight you want to hang on to. Parenting is difficult. Can you believe I gave that to you for free? I should have an infomercial with this stuff. Come on. Parenting is difficult. And if we want to parent in a way that brings our kids to be followers of Jesus, then we've got to understand at some point we have to stand on the rock. At some point we have to plant ourselves on a foundation. Even Jesus says in a story about a man who built his house on the rock, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains fell and the floods came, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. The storms our kids face are huge. The storms we face as parents and grandparents and people of influence in a child's life, they're enormous. 
So would we rather depend on our own agenda, what we learn from Dr. Spock or what to expect when we're expecting, or from our parents, as great as they were, would we rather depend on that or would we rather depend on the one who designed our kids, who created them, who loves them more than you and I ever will, who knows them more deeply than you and I ever will, and who knows what life is supposed to be about more than you or I ever will? I think we have some choices to be made in this area. Joshua offered Israel a choice. Choose for today who you're going to serve. God's beyond the river or the God who brought you to the promised land. I don't care. Me and my house, we're serving the Lord. I believe our choice is to get on the rock today. And I think this means three things for us. As a preacher, I only think in threes, so just bear with me. We have some choices. And the first one is that we must choose to follow. We cannot give our kids God if God is not the center of our lives. That's just the reality. And, and even if you're not, again, if you're not a parent, if you're a, a cousin or a nephew or an aunt or an uncle or someone who has some influence over kids in your life, understand this. If you want them to be, even if you don't have kids yet, if you're planning on it down the road, if you want your kids someday to be followers of Jesus, you can't wait till you have them to become a follower yourself. It's good to start now. Do you want, who do you want them to be? There was a survey done, and statistics show the top four influencers in a child's life were as follows. Mother, and these were influencers for their faith. Mother, father, grandparent, or other relative. The top four people who determined what a kid was going to do with God in their lives. Mother, father, grandparent, other relative. Pastors, seventh. I'm really trying hard not to take this personally. Seventh. We don't even crack the top five. 40 hours, 3,000 hours, top four, mother, father, grandparent, other relative. Maybe you're in one of those categories. You have, you have a choice to make to follow so that others, these children who look up to you, these children you have influence over, might look up to you and end up following you. And that's where it all begins. Because honestly, we all have a choice in determining who guides and directs our lives. As the great poet Bob Dylan once said, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. All of us choose this day and every day whom we're going to serve. And the choice to follow God, to follow Jesus, is one of those things that breaks the cycle that we see kids get stuck in. It's the thing that dismantles the pain that they're all walking into. Now, some of you may think, well, I'll get it all together once I have kids. I don't have them yet, so when that happens, I'll, I'll get all my stuff together. Um, no, no. Let me help you with that. Pennsylvania State psychologist Jay Belsky did a study with 250 couples over uh, seven years. And he finds that only 19% of these couples say their marriage is improved after the birth of their child. You're laughing because you are that 19%, aren't you? 19% of these marriages improved when they had a child. So if you're out there thinking, well, we have a lot of parents' problems in our marriage. Maybe we should have a child and that'll fix it. Huh? It's going to get harder. So if we're going to wait until we have kids to influence with faith, to get our faith straight, we're not going to do it because there are too many other things that are going to take up the real estate in our brains. Belsky says that couples usually look forward to the birth of a baby as a time of closeness. But nearly all new parents grew more polarized and self-centered in response to fatigue and strain. You can't wait until then to get your faith straight because you're going to have a hard enough time getting yourself straight with no sleep. 
we must choose, choose to follow. And our biggest test of strength as parents comes in where do we find our strength? Is it an eternal source? Or is it our own energy? What is it that gives us the energy to keep going? Now, sometimes it is just gutting things out. Sometimes parenting, influencing kids is just putting on the helmet, getting in the trenches, and going through it. Sometimes it is that. But most of the time, our strength has to come from someplace else. In the Psalms, it says, Don't put your trust in princes and mortal men who cannot save. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. This is where our strength comes from. It comes from the rock. It comes from the only dependable thing that we can find in our life. And maybe you've hit that point. Your kids are going through difficult times. Your nieces or nephews or your grandkids are struggling. You don't know what to say to them. And you don't know where to come up with that stuff. Well, maybe there's another source that we haven't considered other than Google or Wikipedia. Maybe there's someplace else that we can draw from to help those kids we have influence over. Jesus says that I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it's he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We shouldn't be surprised when we struggle to influence the children in our lives because we were not built to do that alone. We can't squeeze out our own fruit. We just can't. We're not equipped to do that. And that's why Jesus says, if you try to grow and you try to produce fruit without me, it's going to be painful. And we want to partner with you. We want to help you. Parkview wants to help you to do that. And so one of the things we offer is a class called After We Believe. And this is coming up on May the 19th. It's going to be from 8.30 to 12.30. It's not just about getting better and knowing more. It's about, do you want to be a better parent, grandparent, aunt, uncle, child, son, daughter? Do you want to be a better adoptive parent, foster parent? Do you want to know the source of what where all this comes from to be able to deal with the challenges your kids are having. We want to equip you with those. So we'd love for you to jump online and register for that class. We want to help you with that. So you need to choose to follow. Who is it that's going to be your source of strength in your parenting and your influence today? Second thing is, we must choose to fail. This is the pick-me-up part of the message. We must choose to fail. Now, I know what some of you are saying is like, Casey, I understand. I understand I'm an influence in this kid's life, but I don't know all the Bible, and, and, and I, I'm afraid I'm going to fail, and I'm, I'm afraid I'm not going to get all the answers right, and they're going to think that I'm wrong. You may see some of us who teach on the weekends and think, oh, those guys just, they've always known the Bible. We didn't come out of the womb this way. I'm pretty sure Tim's first words when he was born was, that's funny right there, I don't care what you say. Brian Hunt's, I think, were tag your it, and um, Bill's were something about Chick-fil-A. I can't remember, but we didn't come out that way. That's not how we started. All of us started somewhere and learned how to do those things. And so one of the great things we're going to do as a church in the fall, and I'm really excited to talk about this, September 22nd and 23rd, we're beginning a series called The Story. We are going to take 31 weeks, we've never done this before, 31 weeks and go through the entire story of the Bible as a church, also our kids and our students are going to partner together and go through the entire story of the Bible for 31 weeks so that when those questions come, you will know the big picture of how the Bible all fits together. So we want to help you not to feel like you don't know the answers to that. But let me help you with something else too. The thing is, I, you know, Casey, I don't want to seem like I'm a hypocrite because I think I'm going to fail. The reality about hypocrites are hypocrites are not people who fail. Hypocrites are people who fail and pretend that they didn't. Hypocrites are not people who fail. 
There are people who fail and then just kind of gloss over it, walk away from it. Dads, you know, you're going to say that you never had these thoughts, but you know we have. You know you've been at the zoo and thought this was a good idea. Oh, honey, that jungle cat is way over there. Just stick this stroller in there with him. No big deal. Or maybe you were this dad. But honey, I could get so much more done if I feed the kid with my feet. Fail. (laughs) The reality is we are all going to fail. A mother took her daughter into the kitchen and was lecturing her about lying. She had caught her in a lie. And so she talked to this older daughter and directed her attention to teaching her why lying is wrong and how she had broken down trust. The younger daughter comes around and starts tugging on her shirt. Mommy, mommy. She says, Just wait a minute, honey. You have broken our trust, she says to the older daughter. And this is not something that you should take lightly, young lady, because you have to build that. And later on in life, if you can't tell the truth, it just keeps going. Then the younger daughter tugs at her shirt again. Mommy, mommy, just, just a second, honey. So listen, you're grounded for two weeks. Give me your phone and go upstairs. So she sends the older daughter upstairs. She turns back to the younger daughter and says, okay, honey, what is it? And the younger daughter goes, mommy, grandma's on the phone. And and, and she said, you don't really call that often. And the mom goes, ooh, ah, tell her I'm not here. We fail. We all fail. We all walk that thin line between hypocrisy and honesty. And you know what the reality is? I want my daughter to know when I struggle. I want her to know when I fail and I want her to know how to work through it because I don't want to raise her never seeing that. So the day comes when she struggles with her faith, with her life, which she will. And she looks at herself and instead of saying, this is normal, she looks at herself and goes, there's something wrong with me. Because dad never struggled with this and mom never struggled with it. They never failed at following Jesus. So obviously I'm a bad person. I don't want to raise my child that way. I want her to know how to follow Jesus through the failure. I want her to understand how struggle makes us stronger. Michelle Anthony, an author, she says, God's design for families doesn't require perfection. It requires faithfulness. So when we stick through it, even when we fail, that's when powerful things begin to happen. So we have to choose to admit when we drop the ball in front of the kids that we influence. Because it's going to happen. Even the Apostle Paul, the great and mighty Apostle Paul, says in Romans, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, I do. I know what I'm supposed to do, and I can't seem to make myself do it. And I know what I'm not supposed to do, and I can't stay away from it. We all struggle with faithfulness. We all struggle with living close to what God wants us to be. And as parents, we have to realize we're going to struggle with that. And so it's better to live that out in front of our kids and help them to understand how to deal with it. Because the reality is, what we need then most is to be on the rock. Failure doesn't take us off the rock. Failure is when the rock becomes stronger because the rock is God's grace. The rock is the only thing that's firm enough for us to stand on when we struggle that way. Even Paul, after that verse we just read, he ends it very interestingly. He says, for who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Even though I don't do what I should do, who's going to rescue me from that? Thanks be to God. There's a rock on which I can stand. So we need to choose to be able to fail in front of our kids and show them how to do it right. And finally, we have to choose to follow, we choose to fail, and we choose to forward. Choose to forward. Now, somebody told me after the last service that this was Barack Obama's thing. Listen, it's not political. It's all about email. We're all email people. We get this, right? 
you forward something on. Now listen, I have never forwarded on one of those forward this on and you'll win $10 million things and I'm still alive. So just in case you were wondering if that actually works, I, I haven't seen any ill effects from not doing that. Okay, so let's just stop doing that altogether. Can we, can we promise to do that? So much of what we're doing in our life is taking what God has done for us and forwarding it on to other people. So if you have kids who are influenced by you, you're taking what God has done and forwarding it on to kids. Now, this is not a choice whether or not to do it. I need to restate that a little better. This is not the choice whether you want to influence them or pass something on to them or not. We will do it. The choice is what will we pass on? What will we pass on? Not if, but what? My family and I, we went to a Passover Seder this year, right before Easter. We went to a, a Jewish community over in Homewood, and they had this community open Seder. And so we went and had this meal. And it, it's a meal that they used to celebrate the Passover when the Israelites left Egypt and went toward the Promised Land and got out of slavery. And so there's all kinds of little elements to it. We were the only Gentiles in the room, and it was painfully obvious. We were completely awkward. But we wanted to have that experience. So we all sang and prayed together. And it just the whole place just sang with their faithfulness. Like generations of people had done this same ritual, the same tradition. And so we sang in Hebrew and we all butchered it. It was fantastic. And we, we prayed these ancient prayers. And I almost drank unblessed wine, which they were like, oh no. And I'm like, oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> I was just smelling it. Okay, well, let's, let's go over on from there. But what amazed me about this was they could all tell me generation after generation after generation back into their history where their parents picked up their traditions and what they did when they were kids, what they did when they were growing up. Now, some of us look at that and go, oh, that's just ritual, and that's just legalism, and that's just religion. But for them, it wasn't. Well, for some of them, it was. But for most part, for them, it wasn't. For, what it, for them, what it was was a reminder. It was a reminder. And I think God wants us to become a people who remember why he's the best thing that's ever happened to us. Not just every day, but to look back into our history and see why God is the best thing that's ever happened to us. And I want my kid to know that. And I hope you want the kids who are influenced by you to know that. Because when God put these traditions into play, it wasn't so they had a religion to obey. It wasn't so that he could enforce things on them. They were like big post-it notes that said, remember what I've done for you and pass it on to your kids. Do these strange things. Eat these strange things. Like in the Passover Seder, you eat horseradish. Is anybody eating horseradish just straight? Hallelujah. Whoa. Sinuses were cleared. It was amazing. The point of it was to remember the bitterness of slavery that they escaped from. So that when that happened, God had this in mind in the Bible. He said, listen, in the future, when your son asks you, what's the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws? Our Lord, the Lord our God has commanded you, tell them. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And then he goes on to tell the whole story. You do these things, these traditions, so that when your kids go, why do we do this? You can say, because God means everything to us. Because there's something deeper here than just what we do on Sundays. There's this long history of how God has met us in the worst of times and has brought us out of this. We need to pass that on, forward that on to our kids. One of my favorite authors, Ruth Barton, she and her family celebrate every week an eight-hour Sabbath. So they take a Saturday and they completely unplug. And they've had to do this really intentionally. They do everything, prepare beforehand. They have the best meal of the week on this Sabbath day. Calories do not count on the Sabbath. 
Can I get an amen on that one? How many people can get next to that? Calories don't count on the Sabbath, and they unplug from all their tech, and they unplug from all their activities. The kids don't play sports on that day, and they just focus on getting their life in order as a family and doing things that give them life back and enjoyment back. And so when their kids saw them doing that, they said, why do we do this? Nobody else does this. She was able to say, oh, to remind us that God is in control of the world and that after this eight hours, we'll go back to our life and the planets will still be in alignment that we are not as important to the world as we thought we were. To remind them that God was in control of everything and we are in control of nothing, so much so that we can rest in Him. That's something worth forwarding on. So we need to follow. We have to choose to follow. We have to choose to fail in front of our kids and we have to choose to forward. What are we passing on to them? What traditions and hopes and stories are we passing on to them? When I was a kid, um, we had this string of lawnmowers for about four years that I'm fairly certain were possessed by Satan. And uh, I don't know where they came from. If we had been Catholic, we would have probably called for a priest to come and like, I need an old priest and a young priest. Uh, So my dad spent a lot of summer nights working on these lawnmowers. And I learned something very important about working on lawnmowers. There's a special technical language that you use when repairing a lawnmower. I had no idea. Uh, Apparently the lawnmowers are hard of hearing, so you have to shout it and you have to repeat yourself. So apparently they're not really swift. They don't pick up on it. And uh, a lot of times it was strange combinations. It didn't sound like nouns or verbs. You couldn't really tell what it was. But my dad would spend a good two or three hours in there with this very technical lawnmower repair language, uh, directing his attention and hopefully trying to fix uh, the carburetor. So as a kid growing up, as a, as a son, I always wanted to help my dad. So one day we were working on the mower and I walked down into the shop and I crouched down beside him and I figured this was the language we used to fix the lawnmower. So I began to shout the same kind of instrumental repair language to the lawnmower. I sometimes would repeat his, sometimes I would come up with my own, um, sometimes it didn't make any sense, but as long as I was shouting it loudly and repeatedly, it seemed to be making somewhat of a difference. And then my mom walked up. And there I am, crouched beside my dad, shouting these unspeakable obscenities at this particular uh, piece of equipment. And uh, I learned that apparently that's not a lawnmower repair language. Uh, Apparently, that's frustration (laughs) boiling over. Here's the reality. Whatever we model for the kids who are influenced by us, whatever we model for them, they will soak it up and they will pass it on whatever we model for them. So if we model a life built on a rock, they will pass it on. If we model a life that throws the gauntlet down and says, go ahead, chase the American dream. Chase your own stuff. Chase getting all the toys you need because the one with the most toys wins. Go do that. But as for me and my house, as for me and my family, yeah, we may mess up when we fix the lawnmower, but all most of the other times we're going to stand on this rock. So where is, where is the, the aunt or uncle 
who is going to stand on a rock for their kids? Where is the single mom who's going to say, no matter what my son goes through, I'm going to find people and resources. I'm going to show him I love him no matter what, even if I can't communicate with him. Where is the single dad who can't talk to his daughter because he just don't, uh, doesn't understand the language? And so he says, I'm just going to pray with you because I don't get you, but God gets you. So I'm going to stand with you, Ned. Who? Where are the grandparents who are going to look down at the next generation and say, my wisdom could save your can? Where are those people? And my question is, are you willing, if you're those folks, to stand on the rock? Are you willing to say, I'm throwing down the gauntlet, the giants may come, the waves may come, all these other ways of living may come against us, but as for me and my house, we're standing right here. Because it's not to make you a better person. It's not to make you a good Christian. It's not to earn you heavenly brownie points. It's not for any of those things. It's for one distinct and powerful reason. Because they will need you to. We're going to take communion right now, so I'm going to ask the servers to find their place. Here's the most interesting thing. Um, well, it, it's interesting to me. Hopefully it is to you. The name Jesus in Aramaic, which is one of the Hebrew languages, dialects, is Yeshua. And if you take that and you throw it back into Hebrew and you work it around a little bit, it becomes a very prominent Hebrew name, which is Joshua. So when Joshua parented the nation of Israel to salvation in the promised land, Some thousands of years later, Jesus, Yeshua, would stand on his own rock, crucified on a cross, to lead the entire world into salvation. Throughout history, Yeshua was passed down until one day Jesus would come and say, This is it. Welcome to the promised land. And I want your children and your grandchildren and your nephews and your nieces to hear the story with ringing bell clarity. And so I'm giving you the bread and I'm giving you the cup so that when you break it and you take it, you remember it. The greatest story ever told. The story of Joshua who led the people out of the grave and into a life they couldn't possibly imagine. As we take communion, there, there's just something about remembering that story that brings our hearts back to that place where we know there's a rock in our yard that we should be standing on. As we take these elements, would you let God challenge you on that? Who is it you're supposed to... Maybe, maybe you saw these adoption, these foster care folks, and you're like, ah, oh, we've been kicking that around. We probably should. You get a chance. You get a chance to forward the story to another generation and break the cycle. Don't say no. Don't say no today. Stand on the rock. As the trays are passed, there are two cups. Take both of them. Hold them. We'll all commune together. You don't have to be a part of Parkview. If you're a believer in Jesus, we welcome you to the table. Let me pray for us. Father, because of who you are, because of what you've done, and because of what you're going to do, we're grateful that this story is ours. It's our inheritance, and we can give it away. So let our hearts and minds be focused.
of what you've done for us and how we can give that away today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.